The Window on the World, an international press review by the European Democratic Party, bringing you weekly news and commentaries that matter. Welcome to the seventh episode of the second season of The Window on the World. Today is Friday, 7th of October, and in this podcast, we will hear the best editorials from around the world on Germany's decision to allocate 200 billion euros to its businesses and households, Russia's illegal annexation of areas of Ukraine, and Italy's political future after the election. Let's start right away with the first series of editorials. The first three comments in today's episode concern Germany's decision to allocate 200 billion euros to help struggling families and businesses due to rising utility bills. The increase, as we know, is also due in large part to energy supply problems due to the war in Ukraine. And it is from Germany that we begin, from the Süddeutsche Zeitung newspaper. Germany can afford to enact a 200 billion euro plan to stabilize its economy and support its citizens. Other countries cannot, explains columnist Caroline Meta Biesel. Yet their companies, notes Biesel, referring to other EU countries, have to compete in the European internal market with those that are lucky enough to be based in Germany. It was therefore to be expected that the unilateral German decision would be criticized by other states, such as Italy, Spain, Luxembourg, but also by France, Berlin's closest ally in the EU. The situation is reminiscent of that at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, when Germany initially wanted to guarantee the supply of masks, ventilators and then vaccines to German citizens. Moreover, Germany has so far refused to impose a price cap on gas at the European level. The lack of solidarity shown by Germany could also have a domino effect. The more people are worried about their jobs or heating bills, the harder it will be to find a common response to the other issues raised by Russia's war of aggression. The editorial concludes with a warning to German Chancellor Schultz. To quote the words of his predecessor, Angela Merkel, Germany will only do well if Europe does well. Today's second editorial takes us instead to one of the historically most economically troubled countries among EU members, Spain. In the pages of the daily La Vanguardia, journalist Enrique Giuliana puts in order some of the reactions that the German decision has triggered. According to Giuliana, the reason behind the allocation of the 200 billion would be inflation, which on an annual basis has risen to 10%. And that is what German society fears most. European Commissioner for the Internal Market, Thierry Breton, has also warned that countries with a greater budgetary margin should not abuse their position to protect their citizens and companies. In a call for European unity, similar words were also spoken by former Italian Prime Minister and former President of the European Central Bank, Mario Draghi. In the face of common threats, we cannot divide ourselves based on the margin of maneuver of our national budgets. Finally, Paolo Scaroni, former CEO of ENI, Italy's state-owned energy company, said the problem originated upstream. NATO should have reached an agreement from the beginning. No country in the Atlantic Alliance should profit from Europe's effort to help Ukraine. A gas price ceiling should have been established from the beginning. The last editorial on the subject comes from the British newspaper The Financial Times, 
which hosts the commentary of the President of the European Council, Charles Michel. For the European politician, this crisis vindicates our common growth strategy and makes it a matter of urgency to establish a genuine energy union. It will be an essential pillar of EU sovereignty. The current crisis forces us to reassess how we achieve our longer-term transition to climate neutrality, which is not only central to our environmental fight, but key to our growth strategy. According to Michel, the European energy strategy should be based on four pillars – reducing consumption, ensuring security of supply, lowering prices and strengthening the cohesion of our single market. Michel does not openly criticize the German decision, but points out that actions taken by individual governments to protect their citizens and businesses can cause imbalances and generate a sense of unfairness among countries that should instead be working together. The latest crises, the global financial crisis, the sovereign debt crisis and the coronavirus health crisis have pushed us towards greater European cohesion. We must now do the same in the energy sector and set up this genuine energy union. It's time to take a quantum leap. From the conflict-related energy crisis, we turn to the development of the conflict itself. In late September, referendums were held in the Ukrainian region of Luhansk, Donetsk, Kherson and Zaporizhia to become part of Russian territory. The referendum ended with a large victory in favor of annexation to Russia, but were condemned as illegal by the United Nations, several NGOs such as Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International, and unrecognized by a great many countries around the world. Voters were allegedly forced to vote in favor of annexation to Russia under the threat of Kremlin soldiers. Despite the reactions, last September 30th, the Russian president Vladimir Putin nevertheless held a ceremony in which he formalized the annexation of the four Ukrainian regions. The next three editorials focus on the same topic, Putin's talk of annexing Ukrainian territories, as well as what his strategy and consequences might be. The first article comes from the British newspaper The Times. For the Anglo-Saxon editorial board, the supposed annexation of Ukrainian territories represents an escalation in Russia's brutal campaign of imperialist aggression. The referenda were inherently illegitimate. Putin's choice would have been motivated by the defeats his army has suffered and is suffering on the battlefield. The West, the editorial reads, must therefore not give in to Russia's imperialist strategy and continue to help Ukraine. There are three, the editorial explains, measures that the West should take. First, the flow of arms and materials to Kiev must continue. Second, measures to secure energy independence from Russia must proceed. Finally, the campaign of disinformation by the Kremlin must be patiently countered. According to reporters, Russia's conduct is a reason that neighboring states seek the collective security provided by NATO, whose expansion was one of the pretexts behind the invasion. The cohesion of a defensive alliance of free nations has never been more important in international diplomacy, concludes the editorial, which stresses that it must not fail in its aid to Ukraine. If the previous opinion was about the role of the West, the next editorial looks at the other side of the coin, the Russian situation. For Renaud Girard, 
editor of the French newspaper Le Figaro. After 22 years of unchallenged power at the head of Russia, Putin no longer seems in tune with reality. As he announced the annexation, the Russian army fled the town of Lyman in Donetsk, one of the annexed territories. In the territorial expansion strategies of empires, the journalist writes, control normally precedes annexation. Distrust of the Kremlin leader seems to pervade every aspect of Russian society. State media openly speak of war and no longer just of a special military operation, an expression Putin had made mandatory. More than 200,000 young people have left the country to escape the mobilization of reservists. The Russian elite also seems to be losing confidence in its leader. As for Russian use of atomic weapons, which has been much talked about lately, it is taboo even for Chinese and Indian allies. Obviously, however, no one can predict how and when we will leave this crisis. One fact remains, however, Girard concludes, how could Putin come to terms with his military failures without losing power? Rarely in history has an authoritarian regime survived military defeat. We conclude this second series of editorials by moving to Southern Europe and to the Spanish newspaper El País. For the Iberian editorial board too, Vladimir Putin's only victories are propagandistic. The Russian president, the journalists explain, is nothing but a master of threat and intimidation. Indeed, Russia's recent tactics include the bombing of unarmed civilians and the unilateral annexation of certain territories, an action largely unrecognized by the rest of the world. The annexation, however, may be part of a larger design. With the gas valve in one hand and the nuclear threat in the other, Putin intends to sow discord among European allies and between them and the United States this winter. The goal would be to bring down support for Ukraine so as to push it into ceding annexed territories. To avoid this, the editorial concludes, countries allied against Russia would better resort to and enforce the Budapest Memorandum signed in 1994 and then violated in 2014 by Russia, which guaranteed Ukraine's territorial integrity in exchange for its nuclear disarmament. The last topic of the day deals with the outcome of the Italian elections, which saw the triumph of the right-wing coalition led by Brothers of Italy and the country's political future. We begin with Alice Dive's opinion from the Belgian newspaper Le Libre. In her editorial, the journalist puts in order the studies of Benjamin Biard, a political scientist at the Center for Sociopolitical Research and Information, on right-winged political formations. We begin with the radical right, defined as a variant of the far right, whose relationship with democracy is described as problematic. The far right is an ideology based on three elements, an inherent and classifiable difference between races, a worldview based on radical nationalism, which aims to exclude certain sectors of society, and finally, an action program that defends a society based on racial, cultural, and civic homogeneity. The radical right, without resorting to violence, challenges not the roots of democracy, but its liberalist pillar. Brothers of Italy would, according to the political scientist, fall under this definition. In the wake of the Brothers of Italy's victory, there has often been talk of post-fascism. Unlike neo-fascism, which openly claims continuity of the National Fascist Party, 
post-fascism is a way of describing parties that have distanced themselves from historical fascism and its violent practices, but retain references to that imagery. In conclusion then, Brothers of Italy is a radical right-wing party characterized by an hostility towards democratic liberalism, which at the same time draws on its symbols and imagery from the society proposed by the former National Fascist Party. We now go to France to the newspaper Les Echo. According to political scientist Dominique Moisi, the leader of Brothers of Italy, Giorgia Meloni, embodies a new generation of populists, more competent, less flamboyant and provocative, but one that continues to reject the values of openness to others and tolerance of diversity that are the backbone of democratic societies. Italy thus joins the illiberal European axis, hostile to EU values, consisting of Hungary, Poland and Sweden. For the French political scientist, however, the international and Italian economic situation will not leave much room for maneuver to the prospective Italian head of government. Pragmatic or not, these new populisms are nonetheless characterized by a visceral distrust of elites. The people are good, the elites are bad. European society and politics will have to demonstrate calm and resilience in the face of the arrival of these new populists. Without, however, resigning to the fact that Moisi concludes, the future of Europe does not lie in illiberal democracy and the rejection of the founding values of the Union itself. Let's close the topic of Italy's political future by talking about the political force that garnered 7.8% of the vote, the so-called Third Pole, composed of Italia Viva, a member of the European Democratic Party, and Azione. Both parties are part of the European political group Renew Europe. The last editorial actually comes from an Italian newspaper, the daily La Repubblica. Bocconi University lecturer and columnist Alessandro De Nicola looks at the future of Italian liberals in the new post-election scenario. In Europe, a liberal is defined as one who believes in ideals such as Europeanism, Atlanticism, competition, merit, guarantism, balance and separation of powers, limited state intervention and, of course, democratic pluralism. And in the European Parliament, the professor explains they are part of Renew Europe. The parliamentary group that includes Macron's party, Renaissance, the German, Dutch, Belgian and liberals from Nordic countries, as well as the Spaniards of Ciudadanos. Now being able to count on 7.8% of the votes, what should the third poll do? According to Di Nicola, Italia Viva and action should open up to all expressions of civil society and not only in the role of flagships. While still maintaining an identity, clearly liberal democratic, to try and attract voters from both sides of the political spectrum, as Macron did. Above all, this means focusing on programs and good governance without vague pretensions of parliamentary tactics. In short, the third poll should, the columnist concludes, try to attract the vote of young people who want a vision of the country based on merit, innovation, competitiveness, civil rights, efficiency, public accounts in order, guarantism, limited state intrusion. Before ending, we also want to remind you that on Friday, October 14th, the Congress of the European Democratic Party will be held in Rome. 
And that's it for the seventh episode of the second season of The Window on the World. We thank you for following us and we look forward to seeing you next Friday, always with the best editorials from Europe and the world. This week's editorial work was edited by Daniel Rutza. And at the microphone, it's me, Gail Rego. See you next week.